This podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at cyphercast.net and follow us on Twitter at cyphercast.net. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave. And we will be your guides along the path of suns. Today, we sing three spells. With a distant light pierces the mist, we talk about tools to help with improvisation. With transmission from the Invisible Sun, we discuss the current Numenera 2 Kickstarter and what it might offer Invisible Sun players. Finally, With One Man and His Time Plays Many Parts, we continue the story of Ayatono to explore development mode. Join us on the Path of Suns, and we may uncover a secret or two. With a distant light pierces the mist, we seek inspiration from other media for Invisible Sun games. This time, we are talking about tools you can use to help you improvise during the game. So it's not quite inspiration from other media, but we thought this one would apply here because we're looking for tools that we can use to help your Invisible Sun game at the table. Uh, So if you've been listening since the first episode, I think I may have talked about this a little bit, but uh, one of the the main motivators for me in doing this show as a co-host with Scott was to get myself prepared to run Invisible Sun. And a lot of it had to do with the surreal nature of the game and the setting. Uh, But as we've learned more about the game and more about the systems, there have been a whole lot of other things that I have felt would be pretty important for me to uh, start working on as a GM so that I would be able to handle what Invisible Sun is going to throw at me. And one of those things that I feel is going to be fairly important is being able to be more improvisational as a GM and react more to what the characters or what the players and their characters are interested in doing rather than setting up a long running intricate storyline that takes a a few of the, the hints that the, the players and characters are, you know, going towards, but for the most part uh, starts at, you know, point a and ends at point, you know, Z or whatever it's going to be. Uh, with Invisible Sun, it, it seems like your your players will have a lot more control uh, and a lot more encouragement from the game itself to direct where the story is going to go and how their characters are going to interact with it. What do you, what do you think about that, Scott? I think that's fair and it's consistent with my experience in the playtest. I went into the playtest with some ideas of a traditional storyline I wanted to explore and character creation took me in an entirely different direction through the playtest itself i have noticed various times that you know my efforts to plan are futile in a system that is grounded so much in player creation and uh, the kind of neighborhoods that each of the players had created during uh, that character creation process so uh, i've increasingly leaned on the improvisational components of character creation and other material that emerged through play and less on an outline that I'd started with before the playtest started. Yeah. And uh, that's kind of what I was running into as well um, with 
creating the neighborhood and all of those links for the players to work with, it gave me a lot of stuff that I could pull on during the game. And one thing I've found in my in the past for other games that I've run is the more prep work I do on my end, the less flexible it feels when it comes to pulling in feedback from the players and adjusting things so that you know it incorporates the the bits of story that they're putting together on their own. So in order to work on this, uh, for myself, I've been trying to identify things uh, to make this a little bit easier for myself. Um, and our section here is going to be talking about improvisational tools. So I'm looking this at I'm looking at this as what are some of the things that I want to have, ready to go at the table so that I will be able to more easily adapt to what the players are doing and give them something that's interesting, but also has a bit more weight behind it rather than something I'm just coming up with, you know, off the top of my head. So it's, it's strange that I'm talking about preparing to improvise, but I feel it's kind of important because if you're just making things up and saying, well, you know, it'll make sense at some point. Uh, it feels like that that kind of falls apart under scrutiny from the players. So I've got some tools that I like to have uh, at the table before I get a session started. And these are little things that you do the work for it and that's about it. You don't have to go back into it and and continue working on this stuff between sessions, which is what I would normally do for, uh, you know, a traditional campaign that I might be running. Uh, so I've got a bunch of tools that I think would be helpful to have put together for uh, Invisible Sun. And uh, the tools that I'm looking at are uh, things that help with uh, creating NPCs on the fly, uh, things that help with creating locations. And uh, I guess I also have uh, reacting to player choice, but you know, I don't really have tools for that. I just have these two major things that you know, I'm looking at and saying, hey, this is what I want to have ready to go so that when the players throw me a curveball, I can quickly come up with a character who's interesting and memorable and significant if they need to be. Uh, and the same goes for locations. Uh, do you have any other tool sets that you might want to add into here for this discussion? I think that those categories are good ones to start with, and we can always add more later uh, in future segments. Cool. Uh, okay, so the, the bigger one that I've got is NPCs, uh, because locations, you know, they're they're fairly, well, I guess they're fairly static in most other games, but who knows how things are going to go in Invisible Sun. I mean, you could have uh, locations changing all the time. Uh, but NPCs, to me, are much more interesting and more fun to play with uh, than locations. So I've got, I've got a lot more stuff here for what I want to have prepared for my NPCs. Uh, and the biggest thing for me is putting together some sort of list of names. And I mean, you can you can build your own list of names uh, so that you can make it specific to your setting. So if you have a surreal setting like Invisible Sun, it might not feel right if you go to a fantasy name generator and just dump a hundred names and start picking off that list. Then again, you know, fantasy names might be totally fine for Invisible Sun. Um, but either way, you want to you wanna get a list of names uh, and get those printed out or written down somewhere. And the way I go about it is I, I have this list of names, and if I need to come up with something, 
at the table. Uh, and if you've listened to some of our other shows, you've heard me complain about how bad I am at coming up with names. Uh, I'll just go through that list, grab one that looks interesting, cross it off the list, write a note down in my session notes to say, hey, this person has this name. Uh, and that gets the ball rolling for me. And you can generate these online, like I said. There's also the um, the Book of Names. I believe it's the Story Games Name Project uh, that Jason Morningstar had put together years and years ago. Uh, it's still out there and available. It was under the Creative Commons license, so you might be able to just grab it and use it. Um, otherwise, we've got a link in the show notes uh, for where you can purchase the PDF of that. And it's it's fairly cheap. It's like five or eight bucks depending on where you want to get it from. Another thing that uh, I find very important when I'm putting together characters is uh, some way to come up with interesting traits for those characters. And there are a couple of ways that I've done this that I have enjoyed. Uh, the first one is with Rory's Story Cubes. And when I've used those, uh, we'll drop a link in the show notes again for where what these are. But they're basically a set of six-sided dice that have uh, different icons on the various sides. And what you do is you roll them, and then you can say, hey, table. Um, and this is another point that I was going to bring up at some point. Um, getting collaborative with your players is another thing that helps with improvisation. Because if you can offload a lot of these creative choices to say, hey, players, what do you think this character is like? How about we roll these dice and let's put together a little story about what this character's background is like, and then we'll bring them into the story. So if you have an NPC that's going to be a bit more significant, you might want to do something like this for it. So, Scott, have you ever done um, character traits on the fly like this? I've not used cubes. Uh, I often use name lists. Uh, mm -hmm. I will, uh, usually for each sort of group, I will assign sort of a, a language group that I will try to draw from for their names. So there's some degree of consistency across the names, but I'll swap out some consonants or swap out some vowels to make it so they're not real names, but they're adjacent to real names. Okay. Uh, and when pressed uh, to, to maintain similar consistency or if I'm creating PCs or things like that with a little more lead time than I have during play, I will often use Wikipedia where I will uh, Google some of the inspiration for a character Mm -hmm. And then uh, look for people's names associated with that particular philosophical movement or something along those lines. So for in my current campaign, for instance, there's a an NPC named Bertrand, which I don't even remember what the actual the original inspiration was, but I remembered that I was searching for some philosophical tradition and uh, realized that Bertrand Russell, was related to that tradition. So I just grabbed Bertrand because of that name kind of fit in that particular context. The character for our actual play, uh, Ayatono, I don't mm -hmm. remember exactly where I got that name, but I believe it's a combination of two names from different creators involved in one of the inspirations for the character. I don't even remember who the inspiration was, but the way I got the name and to make it sound somewhat unique was to grab two different names and sort of uh, and, and split the difference between the two names to create a new novel name. Uh, so do you have name lists? So you said you have name lists that uh, you like to use. Do you also put together lists that fall into categories of like a feeling or some sort of, um, I guess it's not quite trivia, but, um, you know, Bertrand 
uh, evokes uh, some sort of, well, for you, a philosophical idea. So do you have, you know, more complex name lists where you categorize names into something like that to, you know, sort of give hints to your players about what this character might be about? No, I would say when I use the lists, I just use them from language groups. Okay. And when I am drawing from Wikipedia, it's because of some thematic connection. And usually a thematic connection that's sufficiently loose that it is hard to, one could not reasonably be expected to figure out from the name, mm -hmm. what the person was representing, and it really wouldn't be spoilers uh, for any sort of uh, story element. Uh, I've done the same thing for sort of with for other for characters in games. So my Warcraft carrier character, for instance, when I was playing a paladin, was Fraunhofer, because I needed to f come up with a name. So I was like, well, paladins are associated with light. So let me look up uh, uh, wave particle duality <laughs> as a part of light. And what scientists are associated with wave particle duality? Maybe then one of them will have a name that I can use for my character. And I and then uh, a scientist named Fraunhofer came up on that Wikipedia page. I was like, ah, that'll work. That sounds like a paladin name. Uh, so it, it's something like that. I don't think Fraunhofer necessarily was not drawn from a list or a, a, of, a, of a language group. And the connection to Paladin is pretty limited. It's just through that incidental connection to light. But it gave me something to search on mm -hmm. until I ran across a name that I liked. Cool. That's that's pretty cool. So getting back to the, the character traits real quick, with uh, Story Cubes, like I've used those to uh, create some NPCs uh, here and there. It's a bit more involved. And I think the way that I like to do it right now is to use the NPC cards that MCG makes. Sorry, acronym salad. The NPC cards that Monty Cook Games makes. Um, you can get uh, those cards, I believe you can, or because they were part of a Kickstarter, so I'd have to check to see if they're available. Uh, either way, we'll put those in the show notes as well. Um, but the NPC cards, they've got you know a very simple way to just draw a card and get a character, uh, or you can draw multiple cards and you know pick and choose the name and traits and you know, quick history about who that person is to come up with a fairly unique NPC. Uh, and the thing I like doing about that is it gives me a little bit of inspiration and it encourages me to try and come up with an NPC who's got some sort of motivation and has something that's memorable rather than just me falling back into what I feel comfortable with as a GM. And a few other things that I do when I'm putting together NPCs on the fly is... Uh, I ask myself a few questions, and I don't think we're going to really talk about too much more than just NPCs tools, NPC tools today, so uh, we might have more tool discussion later. But uh, the questions that I like asking myself as a GM when I'm working on an NPC at the table would be, uh, what, what do the PCs want from this NPC? Can that NPC provide it? And does that NPC want to provide it? Uh, and those questions really set up the you know motivation and how that NPC is going to interact with the group uh, during a specific scene. Uh, you know, if it's a shopkeeper and they're trying to sell the NPCs goods, there's really not much conflict there. Um, but sometimes players want to you know talk to shopkeepers and you know spend some time talking about how much something is worth and, you know, how much they can haggle it down for. But that those questions, I feel, are much more useful when, let's say, the player characters just knocked out one of your henchmen that had ambushed them. Uh, 
and you were expecting your henchmen to either get away or just get killed by your player characters because they're monsters. Um, and you have to come up with some idea of, well, what does this henchman know? Uh, does he want to give this information to the players? And can he give it to the players? And with those questions answered, I can usually, you know, put together a, a quick character who can interact with the players in an interesting way. Um, have you ever run into like a situation where you've got to do that sort of thing? Uh, yeah, it, it's, it, I mean, it comes up quite a bit. And I think one of the things you can prepare most is sort of a flexible set of NPCs to slide in at, an, at any given time, even if you're mixing and matching characteristics with names. Mm-hmm. Uh, but having a portfolio to draw from is uh, useful. And I don't think of it – it's just a different way of preparing than, pe- than people who prepare or as I have prepared in the past with, with the dungeon where you're having a series of numbered rooms with each room having an encounter that you describe in, you know, in your notebook or something. Uh, in this case, you might not map NPCs to particular places, uh, but you have enough ideas for general NPCs that you can just slide them in and then you look at your name list. And, and, and I'm moving more in, in that direction in, in really all the games I play. Yeah, me too. Uh, and when it comes to, you know, having henchmen and, and like low level NPCs like that, I rarely ever think about what they're going to be like until I remember, you know, in the spur of the moment, oh, that's right. My my players really like trying to squeeze minions for information, even though they might not know av- like anything at all. So it's always fun to just sort of uh, go through that mental exercise real quick and say like, does this person actually know anything or were they just hired by somebody that they've never met? Um, And usually when that happens, you know, they can get something out of them. Yeah. I think it's a good exercise to think about, you know, what interests do the NPCs have because their interests aren't simply to serve the PCs, nor is it necessarily, you know, is it purely just to bop the PCs on the head Mm -hmm. and present a physical threat? There can be a wide range of interests and that should give you, many opportunities to make diverse NPCs. One thing we may have to, uh, uh, I don't know a lot about, but we can throw a note in the, uh, a link in the uh, show notes. Uh, there's an RPG that's based almost entirely around this concept. Uh, Hills Folk is based on what's called the drama system by Robin Laws. And my understanding is the entire system is based around generalizing conflict as a series of intera- dramatic interactions between petitioners and the petitioned that is every scene someone is asking someone else for something and so you have to figure out what's being asked will it be provided uh why might someone want to provide it why might someone not want to provide it what cost will they uh, ask for Mm -hmm. to provide for whatever is being asked and these sorts of questions are at the center of the entire rpg Uh, so someone interested in how to break down Uh, NPCs as bundles of interests and uh, potential resources uh, as a a, a means to interact with PCs might find a lot of inspiration in drama system games. Um, Yeah, we should add that to the list, and then I will just borrow that book and give it a good read. Uh, That's a system we've talked about playing here and there, but uh, nobody's really sat down and uh, gotten through the book for us yet, so maybe eventually. So I'm going to briefly touch on uh, locations, uh, since they're similar to how I do NPCs. So with locations, I do find this one a little bit more challenging these days, because 
if I'm coming up with a location on the fly, there are a lot of details that I'm not going to know about. So my go-to here these days has been to just ask the table for things of interest if I didn't have anything prepared beforehand for a place that they're going to. And when I do that, I generally get enough um, detail and information to put together a location that they're going to be interested in. And hopefully I can use all that to you know, fit that into where the story is going and what the players are doing. So as far as locations go, I'm still working on that one. So I'm, I'm curious to see how, what other ways to put together locations might be out there. And this one might just be a matter of having things prepared a little bit better beforehand uh, or being more familiar with uh, the setting that the game is running in, uh, something like that. But either way, uh, I think we have a lot more stuff to talk about here for improvisational tools that I haven't touched on. Um, but we've got NPCs, we've got locations, and uh, more to come back to at, on another show, I think. How's that sound? Yeah, I'll, yeah I, I'll conclude just by saying that you know this is a, a common problem. Uh, in a previous life, I was a debate coach. And as you can imagine, teaching people to improvise is a big part of debate. But the trick was helping people realize that the best improvisers are the people who prepare a whole lot in advance and they do all the homework they can before the moment of improvisation so that they're as free as possible to dedicate their you know improvisational time to improvisation so you you kind of do your homework first so that you are pre as prepared as possible and that i think still applies here in improvisational role playing games yeah. where if you create a, a broad portfolio of ideas for NPCs and locations and interests and motivations uh, and characteristics and all of that, names, uh, then in the moment of truth of improvisation, you'll be ready to execute quickly and efficiently uh, and to create satisfying NPCs and locations. If you instead say, oh, well, it's all really just improvisation, so I'll wait and do it when I get there, um, then you will have a more frustrating time. So uh, it, it seems paradoxical, but the secret to improvisation may in fact be careful preparation, uh, but flexible preparation. Yeah, and I think we will be talking about that the next time we touch on this subject. With Transmission from the Invisible Sun, we discuss information that comes from Monty Cook Games outside the regular design diaries or Kickstarter updates. In this case, we will discuss the new Kickstarter campaign for Numenera 2 and what it can inspire for your Invisible Sun game. As we record this episode, we are uh, early in the process of the uh, relatively long Numenera 2 Kickstarter period. So luckily we'll be able to talk about this Kickstarter um, and release this episode to you before the Kickstarter has ended uh, and encourage you to take a look at the Kickstarter uh, with the uh, with an eye for Invisible Sun, because while it is a Kickstarter for Numenera, uh, I think you will find that there's uh, possible inspiration there for your Invisible Sun game, even if you never intend to play Numenera uh, uh, as an RPG itself. So to give you a kind of an overview of what the Kickstarter is uh, covering, it's called Numenera 2 Discovery and Destiny. And the core product that launched the Kickstarter is a pair of books uh, Discovery and Destiny. Discovery is a repackaged and updated set of core rules. 
as uh, the, as MCG mentioned at the uh, at Gen Con, uh, this is the timing is driven in part by the fact that they are just about out of the print run of the original Numenera core rule book. So they had a choice. They could either just reprint the core rule book or they could update it. And what they've decided to do is to combine a substantial update, not just sort of a correction of typos and that sort of thing, but a substantial update to make Numenera core rule book consistent with cipher system rules and what they've learned about the cipher system over the years with some expansion. Uh, the expansion mostly comes in the form of Destiny, the second book. This will include new character options uh, with an expanded focus on community building. Uh, they mentioned the original inspiration for Numenera involved sort of uh, confronting a, a, a weird world, an, a world that's kind of unknown to the players, uh, and then building a community to, uh, that can thrive within that weird world. Well, the original rule book focused a lot more on exploration and a lot less on building. So they're trying to move Numenera into a second phase that allows for more tools uh, for campaigns focused on building rather than just exploring the ruins of previous worlds. Uh, some of this, there's, there's some terminology here that I think might lead to confusion. Uh, and, and I'm not sure that MCG did themselves a favor by calling this Numenera 2. Uh, that leads some people to think this is a second edition and that they need to, they're replacing their, their old books with new books and all of the stuff that they've bought and used for Numenera 1 won't work for Numenera 2, much like it was difficult to use, say, Dungeons & Dragons 1st edition material with Dungeons & Dragons 2nd edition characters. Um, but that distinction is, is, is not quite right. Uh, from what I can tell, the best way I can come up with describing Numenera 2 is it's like Numenera Phase 2, you will be able to use your old characters with all the new stuff. You can use the new character classes brought in the Destiny book and run them through the old adventures if you want to, and they can fight the old monsters. And that, sh that should be uh, relatively easy to connect material from Numenera 2 with, with material from Numenera 1. It's just they've learned some things, so it will lead to some changes in systems, uh, but mostly just lead to new options. And so I, you know, I think it's worth kind of confronting that distinction head on. Yeah, and it, and it seems like uh, some of the rules revisions are going to make it in from Cipher System, and also the language that they use to describe the game and how to play the game is going to get a little less. Um, I'm trying to think of exactly how they described it, but it was fairly verbose how they talked about certain parts of the rules in the game. And they're going to try and change that to make it a bit more conversational so that it'll be easier to read through the book and understand, oh, here's how this game works because the book is telling me rather than, well, here's how this works because, you know, the section subsection 216A says this is how it works. Yeah, they've learned a lot about how to teach the game. Mm -hmm. And so in addition to fixing some little problems with the systems, I think they're going to be changing the wording to help teach the game better through the text. But we don't need to go into too much detail on the Numenera side. Um, I do want to add that the, uh, the, the already the Kickstarter is funded, and we're talking about multiple books being added beyond Discovery and Destiny. 
So the Kickstarter itself includes uh, uh, a book called The Trilling Shard, which is going to be based upon community fiction. That's part of the Kickstarter process itself. They're going to be telling a story throughout the Kickstarter about a new community. Elomir, I think, is the name of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, the fan fiction that generates uh, from that emergent storytelling process combined with their own Kickstarter updates uh, will be collected and revised and repackaged as part of a, a, a book about this community. Called, I believe that's the, what the Trilling Shard is. Yep. They've announced a book that's going to focus on the building components. Again, this uh, the Destiny book and the new phase of Numenera is really going to focus on community building. So they have a whole book about discovering and repurposing pieces of the old worlds uh, and building your new communities within Numenera called Building Tomorrow. Uh, a new campaign called Slaves of the Machine God. Uh, and most recently, at the time of recording, uh, they've announced, but we have not quite funded, a book about uh, the uh, about the Aeon Priesthood, uh, or uh, a particular group within Numenera, uh, uh, and the book will be called Priests of the Aeon. And there's there's the possibility of even more books or these books becoming better as the Kickstarter continues. But that's that's all very Numenera specific. I think it's worth asking us, uh, for our purposes. Uh, what of this matters for Invisible Sun? Because I, th- I think that while this is a Numenera Kickstarter, there's actually some of what some of this Kickstarter and the the books coming out of the Kickstarter that might be of inspiration for us in our Invisible Sun RPGs. And I say that because I would conjecture that it was the neighborhood mechanics in Invisible Sun that actually inspired the focus on community building and the way they're looking at community building in Numenera. This is just a guess. Uh, uh, hopefully, I don't anger anyone or get some sort of uh, you know Twitter storm from MCG saying I totally got it backwards or something like that. But I'm willing to conjecture, given what we hear about building neighborhoods or building uh, communities in Numenera, right after they did all the play testing for the neighborhood mechanics and in Invisible Sun, that there's a connection between those, uh, and it suggests that we might be able to learn about the our neighborhood mechanics. Uh, from what we can find in Numenera's community building mechanics, because it's really their second crack at this sort of system. Mm-hmm. And so maybe we can learn about building surreal communities in Visible Sun, uh, inspired by what they have now moved to in building weird communities for Numenera. Yeah, with the uh, community building, with the neighborhood building in Invisible Sun, it really gives you the the setting that your characters are going to exist within. But here with the Numenera stuff that they're doing, it seems like, all right, you have that setting. Now let's throw some problems at it and let's put some systems in place uh, to make it a bit more interesting than just, uh, you know, making things up as we go. Right. So it, it describes community level threats and how a campaign can really focus on the evolution and defense of communities, which I think can be of use for us, for our neighborhoods, just as much as it is for a Numenera village or something along those lines. Uh, and, and it might even, you know, add to what we can, what we get from the Invisible Sun game if the Invisible Sun game really focuses on neighborhood creation. Our neighborhoods are existing within communities, whether it's within Saturn or, or, or other potential uh, communities. Uh, 
if we can see, if we can learn from how to build communities and th- and the threats to those communities, and how a campaign can be community focused, uh, then I think we we can import a lot of those lessons into Invisible Sun, at least potentially. So, it's one of the things that has me most excited about the about the Kickstarter. Yeah, um, thinking about it from an Invisible Sun perspective, that is pretty interesting, and it's worth noting that Destiny is going to be coming out in March of 2018. So that falls very shortly after Invisible Sun is going to be releasing. Building Tomorrow, I think, is going to be much more specific to the Numenera setting and diving into ancient ruins and old world civilization. Uh, I'm losing my train of thought there. You know, ancient ruins, uh, finding stuff and uh, updating your community with that. So I think a lot of what you and I are going to be interested in is going to be covered in Destiny itself. Yeah, it may be the case that we can find inspiration for surreal community resources in their discussion of weird community resources mm-hmm. in Building Tomorrow. But I, I, th- I, I think you're right that uh, maybe the, what we learn most is about community level threats or examples in that are likely to be in Destiny about the different roles that players can have in the community building process. So the new game is going to include new character types for Numenera. Mm-hmm. And I don't know off the top of my head, and it's not particularly relevant to us, what the names of those types are. Arcus, Wright, and Delve. Those. Ha-ha. Um, <laughs> Uh, and but they what they represent could also be translatable into Invisible Sun because it it represents kind of a social leader figure, uh, as well as a builder uh, kind of crafter figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, suspiciously, the crafter you know might be inspired in part by the makers Invisible Sun, but I'm not sure. I mean, it's not the first time there's been a maker sort of class in an RPG, uh, but we might see. Uh, something in the uh, the, the uh, builder type in Numenera that can inspire makers in Invisible Sun. And we might find it, uh, an inspiration for really just about any order uh, in Invisible Sun in the social leader figures. And the role that a PC can play in building a, a community might inspire stories we tell about bringing our community, our neighborhood together uh, in Invisible Sun. So the, I think the roles are going to be maybe more directly in, uh, a, a source of inspiration than even particular resources that might be cool from a Numenera perspective, but don't directly translate into the surreal uh, world of Invisible Sun. Yeah, it'll be uh, interesting to see when that stuff drops. This is still early on. Uh, we, As we record, uh, we're what, less than a week into the Kickstarter. Yeah, I guess we are. <laughs> right around that. Yep. Um, and uh, the Kickstarter runs for uh, like over a month. Yeah, I think they set it to 40 days. Yeah, so it's, it's going to be a long Kickstarter, I think in part to allow time and space for uh, this community uh, fiction component for building the Trilling Shard and the social uh, experience of the emergent storytelling that comes along with it. it. might be fun just as from a spectator perspective, but that gives us a lot of time. So while we do record these episodes in advance and sometimes it's hard to hit windows, uh, we'll be able to hit this window. Uh, the, this episode will, will release while the Kickstarter is still going on. So we talk about this in this brief segment uh, just to bring your attention to the Kickstarter. Uh, it's not an Invisible Sun Kickstarter. It is 
definitely a Numenera Kickstarter. But we wanted you to think about how a Numenera Kickstarter may still provide inspiration and resources for an Invisible Sun campaign, and that may inspire you to fund the uh, the campaign itself. I know I have pledged for the Kickstarter, though I don't anticipate running a Numenera campaign. I've run the game before. I might in the future, but I'm uh, pledging primarily because I think it might be inspirational for our Invisible Sun RPG. I'm pledging as well because I really like how their books look, and there's a lot of material in the books that I find to be really interesting, and it really gets my imagination going when I'm trying to come up with ideas for basically any kind of game. So, in conclusion, check it out. There's a link in the in the show notes. Alright, so where we last left off, Itono made his way to the uh, market square and uh, there was a building there that had been uh, wrapped up with large chains that he managed to cut through with his, uh, well, the nightmare that he had just uh, extracted from somebody and managed to free the people that had been trapped within. So this is going to be our second development mode segment and we're going to be picking it up from there at some point after those events have happened i believe though you know we might do flashbacks uh or different side stories so who knows where this stuff is going to start off in the future but um i think here we might just want to uh talk about where things are at with itono and see where we want to go from here so scott um where where do you want to move things uh for itono's story at this point well i just helped extract people from this building that was chained up um Mm -hmm. i had my the banner from the uh from the temple that i had had worked at Uh, i don't think i'd ever said anything about what like the banner looked like. Uh, so I'll say for, because it's kind of fun to define now that it's the, uh, the image is of a closed eye half submerged in water. And so I've got this banner, uh, that people recognize as being from the, this local temple. Uh, and <clears throat> they know that I've been able to get them out of that house and I'm taking them back with me then, uh, to, to the temple, uh, at, to, to kind of give them a safe place to stay while we figure out what's going on and how uh, pervasive the threat is. Okay. That sounds good. Um, and, you know, we don't want to get too caught up in the details here because this is, this is development mode. We're not doing uh, narrative. Um, so it's, you know, we're really just looking for broad strokes here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, like I would think, if we were playing this at a table, we would dig into some of those details and, you know, pull out some characters from this and, you know, do a little bit of uh, interactive uh, character work there. But um, like I said, we're doing development mode here. So like, I guess having that other part absent from, from play is going to make this a little bit, trickier well you in develop mode i think you can be as specific or mm-hmm. as uh you know as 
uh, vague as, as you want to be. You can do 30,000 miles sort of, or 30,000 30, feet sort of views of the story and yep. speed it along as appropriate. Or you could zoom in and do an NPC interaction. You kind of go either way, depending on what you want. Yeah. Um, and I think um, rather than what I want, what what does Itono want to do? What what does he want to get out of? Like, what is what is he going to be looking for from helping these people? Like, he's helped them. He's gotten them out. They've gotten back to the temple, and they're taking care of them. Uh, is there anything that he would want to uh, get from them? You know, I'm not I'm not trying to make it sound like you know he's a jerk and he's just doing this for his benefit, but. Um, like, is there anything that you feel might be interesting to dig into with the people that he's pulled out? Uh, or is there some other question you wanted to uh, pursue? I think I'll take my inspiration from what I believe was the uh, the Sooth card pull last time was the Questing Knight. I think something, so. That's something fair. along those lines. Um, something like that. Yeah. And so like when, when in doubt, I'll try to fall back on the Sooth card and say that maybe my motivation right now is going to be focused on this notion of a questing knight. Uh, my goal will be just just to secure the safety of the people I extract from the uh, from the establishment. Uh, but once I've done that, I want to return to the building that had been chained up uh, and investigate this because this is kind of uh, the potential of a of a new quest, uh, a uh, a heroic endeavor that I hope to uh, embark upon uh, to kind of help my uh my community okay um so you're you're helping these people get settled and uh make sure everybody's you know safe and taken care of and anybody who has medical needs is, is being attended to and as describe to me what your preparation uh what your preparations are going to be like in order to go back to that house I don't anticipate it, uh, kind of preparing much. Once I get people uh, kind of seated and I uh, find some of the other um, the people who are working in the uh, in the temple, mm-hmm. I basically <laughs> kind of push the uh, the people their way and and have them take care of them. I, I make sure they they understand these people have been displaced uh that i don't know how general the threat is i don't know uh who else is in danger so i need to return immediately to assess the situation and to to, uh serve whomever i can find out um uh, outside of the temple. So rather than you know, dutifully prepare uh, and collect all the provisions necessary, uh, I'm running right back out again with, with the standard and uh, looking for more people who may need uh, help or if there's other buildings that are similarly affected. Okay. Um, do you think that uh, – who who is the, the person that's in charge of the temple here? Do you remember his name? Oh, I, here it is. William Adso? Yes, that sounds right. Yeah, William Adso, um, would he would he be in favor of you uh, heading out and taking care of this, or would it be more important for you to stay at the temple and make sure the people that you've brought here, uh, you know, they're your responsibility? Uh, how how would he feel about this whole situation? I think deep down he would appreciate the motivation to uh, seek to help those who are most in need. 
mm-hmm. uh, and thus to kind of go back out to find out if there's other people who are who need more immediate attention and would understand my leaving these other people behind, though uh, he is a little impatient with my uh, uh, impetuousness uh, to strike out on this sort of quest. Uh, that he, uh, on, the, on the one hand, um, he'll chide me for it, but uh, deep down, he actually appreciates it. Okay. Okay. So um, you get back out to the building, and the chains are still there. The chain that you had uh, sliced apart, uh, it's still kind of hanging loose. Um, there are no other buildings in the marketplace that have been uh, similarly, uh, well, encased. And the the people in the market uh, are keeping a pretty wide berth and waiting for uh, the local thaw to, uh, you know, send somebody out to investigate. Uh, so nobody is going to get in your way at this point to keep you out of there for safety. Yeah, I'm first asking around to see if anyone knows of other buildings that were similarly affected. Uh, and while asking and, and trying to get more information, I'm also trying to collect if there's a piece of a of a link of the of these chains that's been severed uh, or something along those lines that I can collect for later investigation. I would do that. Okay. Um, all right. So I'm I'm feeling like at this point I'm going to pull a card. Because you're looking for more information, and you're like you can you can easily well okay so you're looking for more information, and you're you're gonna try and uh, gather up uh, pieces of the chain that are you know available. So I'm pulling a suits card. Let's see what we get. All right, so we've got um, the card, which is the devil. So this is a good one. You'll love it. <laughs> Let me find that card. So, Devil, Nemesis. The number on it is zero, and the family is a symbol that I don't know off the top of my head yet, and I am grabbing my sheet to tell me what that symbol is. Uh, Secrets. And the secrets, I have to look up which heart that is related to. Oh, yeah. Um, Uh, Flame hearts are tied to secrets. All right, so uh, something here is going to go fairly poorly for you. Yes, it is. Uh, the The level of action that I can succeed on is a zero for this card. Yes. <laughs> uh, and we also have the devil. Well, yes. a devil. Uh, so, uh, you know, a pretty sinister looking guy uh, with red eyes and serpents. Uh, so here, here's what's going to happen. Um you're you're back in the the marketplace and you you spot there's a you know a, like part of the link of the chain that you had sliced through is uh, laying in front of the building and you reach down and pick it up and as you do so uh, that chain that chain link like transforms into a serpent as you grasp it and this black um, iridescent serpent. Um, you know, bites down on your forearm and uh, your vision goes hazy and blurry and uh, you, like, that's about all you can remember from 
your investigation into what's going on with these chains. Yeah, I try to I try to prop myself up with the banner, but uh, to no avail. Uh, I can't even hold myself up with that and eventually fall over. Luckily, there's other people around to see. Yes. Or maybe unluckily, as the case may be. So uh, that will that will be where we wrap up uh, segment two, and uh, you know we'll we'll see where we go with segment three. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from DriveThruRPG. Invisible Sun is currently available for pre-order at InvisibleSunRPG.com. For a limited time, you'll receive an additional sooth deck when you pre-order the game. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Agonseer, A-G-O-N-S-E-E-R, on Twitter. And you can find me at Tex underscore Red on Twitter. Do us a favor. Leave us a rating uh, and a review on iTunes. Uh, it really helps people find out about our show. Another great way is to just uh, tell a friend. Uh, tell a friend about Incantations. Tell them about Invisible Sun. And that would really help us out a lot. <laughs>